Thank you, Joe. The scripture this morning is Mark chapter 11, Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. And while you're uh, turning to that, one announcement that we forgot to mention is that there will be communion during the service today. And so uh, if you want to take a few minutes uh, to prepare, you can go ahead and uh, get uh, some uh, juice and crackers uh, ready in your house. And at the end of the service, we'll, uh, we'll all take uh, communion together. And I'll give you a moment to do that, and we'll be turning to the passage. And, and I wasn't going to mention this, but since I've got time, since you're going to get that, I'll, I'll say I've uh, had the, just the wonderful blessing of seeing friends uh, that are pastors, friends that are worship leaders all over the United States and some um, in other parts of the world. I've been able to hear their sermons, been able to hear their music. And I think we should pray for the musicians and specifically the guitarists because I know these guys, and I know how frugal they are, and if their wives find out how much that gear actually cost. I'm looking over at Joe right now, and he's looking behind him. Uh, you're, they're going to be in real trouble, so uh, let's, let's watch that. I, I had a good conversation with a friend this week saying, wow, that is an amazing guitar, and it led to a great story of how he saved up because he knew what a blessing it would be uh, to the church and to his family, so thankful for that. Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. This is uh, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to, to Bethage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and drew their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. Many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. 33 years. 33 years prior to the events of today, God started his next phase of a daring plan. You see, God had known that man was going to fall back in the garden. And he knew the problems and the struggles that we were going to have in life because of that fall. And all throughout history, he provided ways for people to come connect with him, but never quite the relationship like they were supposed to have back in that garden. But God always had a plan. He always knew that he was going to send someone that was going to redeem us, that was going to restore the relationship that we were always supposed to have with him. And that plan began when he sent a young baby, just a baby, to a family of you know, no, no, uh, no high regard to raise him and prepare him for his ministry. And there were some things that happened along the way, but it really wasn't until he was about 30 years old that he really began his work, Jesus began his work on earth in earnest. And so during that three years, he put together a group of 12 men who were with him day and night, who followed him everywhere he went, and who listened to the teachings that Jesus had for them. And for those three years, he did ministry, and they saw him do ministry. He showed them how to do ministry, and they did ministry. He showed them how to care for the poor. He showed them a love for others. He taught people everywhere he went about God's truths. 
And as we want to hear about that with uh, what Vince had preached just a week or two ago, or just last week, we focus so much on saying God's truth, but God's truth ultimately came back to God's love. And so for three years, Jesus was teaching people what it meant to be loved by God and what it meant to love others and have God love others through you and through I. And so for those three years, he poured everything he had into them. And there was frustrating times. There was times they didn't get it. There was times that they messed up. There was times the people didn't get it, and he had to go away and pray to God and be with him and, and really just kind of refocus and, and things because it was tough. But all through that way, Jesus, through his actions, was revealing that he truly was the Messiah. And people were going, is he? Is he not? Peter openly said it, and Jesus acknowledged it. But Jesus had never come out in his ministry and said, here I am, I'm the Messiah. He simply served, and he continued to serve for three years. And he never once openly declared to anybody of who his true identity was until this day that we call Palm Sunday. When it says that Jesus, uh, that the disciples drew near to Jerusalem, and, it, and it's very specific about where they are. It says at Bethany at the Mount of Olives. And he says, go get this colt and untie it, and I'm going to ride it into town. Well, some of us may think, well, that's, that's kind of interesting information. That's, that's, some, that's a little bit of geographic uh, uh, trivia to know. But 500 years before that day, the prophet Ezekiel had a vision. And that vision was of God leaving the temple because the people were so corrupt and the temple was so corrupt. But Ezekiel always gave them hope. And he said, some point, God is going to come back into the temple. His presence is going to come back into this temple. And when it does, it's going to come through the same way that it left. And if you've already guessed it, that way coming through is by Bethany, by the Mount of Olives. And so Jesus is purposely just, uh, pointing out where he wants to come into Jerusalem from. Every person writing, or every person reading this, or, or witnessing this, would have known that's exactly what was going on. But then he says, go find a donkey. And some passages say one that has never been rid, rid, uh, rode on, rid on, ridden on. You guys with grammar correction can find that later. Um, Every person in the, in the crowd would have connected that as well. Because in Zechariah 9, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter Jerusalem. Lo, your king comes to you triumphant and victorious is he, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You see, we've come to know that in ancient times, uh, uh, governors and leaders in cities would demand that their people come out and welcome them in. And we also know that when people came for Jerusalem for the, the festival, it was customary that people would just come out and welcome the guests that are, that are the travelers that are coming for the celebration. But when the governor comes in, he comes in riding this massive stallion, this, this war horse, and he's in full adornment, and you're supposed to know the power and the might and all that he's got going for him because of the way he comes in. But the man of God comes in, fulfilling prophecies to say who he is. And he comes not to show his power and might, but to show his love and his humility and show all of the people who he really is. And clearly they get it because they didn't just welcome him. They laid their cloaks on the road and they said, Hosanna, save us, blessed are you. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They get it. 
And Carla and I were talking about this this week because I, I, I said there's so many things going on here. You could do so many things with this, with this passage. And as we, we look over it, there's a moment in here where we say, this isn't just all of these prophecies being fulfilled. This isn't just some of the uh, plans and architecture of God, and we'll get to that in a minute. But I think for the disciples and for Jesus, this was a yeah moment. This was a three years of working so hard, three years of, of doing the right thing, three years at, at times were struggles, and people didn't believe them, and at times they had to hide and run for their life. And after three years, Jesus gets to have a victory run. And I think he deserves that victory run. And the people are celebrating. Years of government rule, years of oppression, years of Jewish leaders telling them how they should live their life and giving them rule after rule after rule and law after law after law, and they finally are going to see the Messiah, and in their minds, it's for the first time in many generations, they have hope. Celebrate it. Love it. Bow to Jesus. Look at all of the possibilities. As I was studying for this sermon, a key question kept coming back to my mind, and I was driving everybody that I could talk to about it crazy. If you don't know me, when I've got something stuck up there, I just keep talking about it and talking about it and talking about it over. Joe and I had a talk for a few moments on the phone the other day about this. And that question was why? Why does Jesus have this event? You say, well, you just told us the why. He fulfilled prophecy. Yes, I, I know he did that. You said it was a proclamation of who he is. Yes, I know. Some uh, scholars even say it forces the hand of the Jewish leaders and the Roman rulers that they have to do the next things that are going to lead us to the cross because Jesus know that, knows that has to be done and because that's part of the plan. I think all of those are true. But Jesus in this moment is declaring victory even ahead of the battle. And some of you are going to hate me saying it, but in moments when I was first started reading it, I said it sort of felt like in 2003 where six weeks after the United States entered Iraq, George Bush held a mission accomplished sign above himself and gave a speech saying how he'd won the war in Iraq. And years later, we were still fighting this war that we had finished all those years earlier. Finished all those years earlier. And I don't mean that uh, to be rude or, or, or to take anything away from it. I, I know so many pieces of it, but it just kind of stuck with me as why was the celebration now why wasn't the celebration on the other side? As I said, Jesus is uh, proclaiming to everyone who he is. He's revealing to be the Messiah, the Son of the living God, who's there to save all people. It is so important for people and for us to know that, that in that celebration, he's letting them know that. And it's important to know who Jesus is, even if we don't yet understand fully what that means. And I think that's a portion of the why. Just because we don't fully recognize all of who God is doesn't mean we can't celebrate his love for us and the hope that brings to all of our lives. In one moment, the people are all celebrating Jesus as Messiah, and in the next, they hate him. They hate him. At best, there was 12 or 15 or 20, maybe a tops, that were disappointed and disillusioned, but the rest were shouting, crucify him. How did it get to that point? Later in Luke, two men are walking along the road to Emmaus, 
uh, this is after uh, Rodomaeus, two men are walking along the road, and this is um, after Jesus has risen from the dead. This is after all of the events. And they are talking to somebody they don't know that's Jesus, and we'll get to that full passage in a minute. But as they're talking to him and they're explaining to him all that had happened, they said, but we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. We had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. We had hoped. There it is. Every child of God for at least 400 years had grown up hearing about the Messiah. Growing up learning of the one who would unite God's people. Growing up learning about the one who would ultimately rule over all. But they took that to mean rule all over Rome. Rule all over Jerusalem. Rule all over the kingdoms of the earth. And the next ruler of Rome and the next ruler of Jerusalem, that kind of king doesn't end up on a cross getting executed. Hashtag, not my Messiah. All of us at some point in our journey, every single one of us at some point in our journey, are going to be one moment celebrating what God is doing in our lives and in another moment wonder how God could have let us down so poorly. Wondering why, as a Christian, he would let tragedy happen to us or happen to those he loved. Wondering why are all of our plans, after we prayed over them, after we saw so many good things happening, started to fall apart and fail. All of us are going to hit that point in life when everything we thought we were doing right on the way, on our journey to our Palm Sunday, somewhere even after the celebration, by our accounts, seems to fall apart. Maybe you've longed for someone to be healed, for a job, for a baby, for a spouse. Maybe you have faithfully and earnestly prayed for weeks and months and even years, but the people are still sick. You or someone you know is still unemployed, still childless, still single. Or maybe you've been following God's plans and everything had seemed to be going okay, and then those plans fall apart. You get news that's devastating, or an unexpected event, like this event we're in right now, changes everything. And you're disappointed. And if you are being very honest with yourself, you're disappointed with God. Years ago, after a message I'd given, a man who I'd met several times, who'd come to the church a handful of times, um, who was someone who had a, a frustrating life and a lot of problems in life, um, he came forward. And in his brokenness and his hurt, he prayed to God. For the first time, he told me later in his life, he prayed to God. And he thanked God for loving him. And he thanked God that God could take away all the garbage that was going on in his life. And he sincerely looked to God and he said, this is my Palm Sunday moment. This is the moment where I'm going to celebrate the love that God has for me. The next day he went to work and he just was on cloud nine for this event. And he got home that night and there was police cars waiting for him. And those police, for things that he had done weeks earlier, arrested him and took him to jail. And he had to spend a week in jail. And I got to see him that next Saturday when, when, he had, uh, when his mom had bailed him out. And he came to me, and he was angry. Oh, he was so angry, so bitter. And he said, based on the decision I made Sunday, based on the prayer I gave to God on Sunday, that should have never happened to me on Monday. And he pointed at me just like that as he said it. And he said, you told me all these things about God being loving. You told me that God cared about me, and God let me go to jail. 
I want no part of that God. In other words, on Sunday, he was praising, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest. And by Monday, even ahead of these people, he was yelling, crucify him, crucify him. For others, it can be more like the disciples. You've followed God for years, you've been faithful. Then something happens that you were sure Jesus would be, have been powerful enough to handle. A problem he would have taken away from you. A sickness that shouldn't happen. A loved one that gets healed. But it doesn't happen. No matter all the ways you pray, no matter all the plans you make, tragedy still shows up. You don't shout out in anger, but you do move further and further away from God. Just like the disciples not being there at the cross and not even showing up at the tomb after the event. You just start to slowly drift away. Maybe your prayer time starts to disappear. Maybe you quit showing up for Bible study. Maybe you just quit reading the Bible. Some people find that Sunday mornings become about mowing the lawn or reading the morning paper again. You know, those, those different things. And you're slowly pulling away because you can't bring yourself to say you're mad at God. All of your religion and upbringing has told you you're not allowed to do that. But you are saying, I'm just not trusting him like I did. And so you were disappointed with God. Is it possible to get back to that? Is it possible to get back to that moment where Palm Sunday was this victorious moment where the king was riding into your life? I'd say it is possible to see it once again. And I want to talk to this last few minutes with the how that happens. First, I think you need to grieve the loss. You need to grieve the loss. You need to realize it's okay to be honest with God about you, how you feel. I, I just so laugh when we're not honest with God about how we feel as though there's some area in, in life that God doesn't know how you or I feel. And so be honest with him so you can be honest with, her, with, with uh, yourself. Grieve that loss. Feel the hurt of it. Mourn it. Let it pass through your life. John Piper put it this way. Occasionally we, uh, we occasionally weep deeply over the life you hoped would be and grieve the losses. The author of the Psalms was very honest about it. Psalm 131 and there's, there's several areas where there's songs of, psalms of lament. It says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Don't be afraid to just pour your heart out to God, to let him know where the hurt is, and let him know that you feel like he's got some aspect of that. The next thing, ask what disappointed you. Ask what was it about this situation that disappointed you, that let you down. You know, years ago, a few of you have heard this story. Um, I had just decided one day to stop eating sugar. I ha I've got, there's a history of sugar problems in my family, and I decided I'm just going to quit sugar out of my life, and we'll see how it goes for 30 days. Then 30 days turned into 60 days, and 60 days turned into 90 and pretty soon, six months had gone by, and I hadn't had a candy bar. I hadn't had sugar other than what's baked into food that you can't stop of any kind. My family started noticing it. They, they noticed that I was losing weight and that, uh, um, and that I wasn't getting uh, sweets and things at different events. And so I'd gone, like I said, for one year. And in that year, I'd lost over 20 pounds by doing nothing else. And I, my body had learned not to miss it, and things were kind of going on the right track until I had this physical and this doctor's talking to me, and he says, you know, 
Um, you're quite a bit overweight around here. Uh, the cameras are going to show all of you how badly overweight I am around here. And he says, uh, you know, you really have to watch that. He goes, I'm surprised all of your lab numbers came back as well as they did by, you know, your lack of physical <laughs> anything. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> you're a hot mess. And um, so I, sa I started telling him, I'm so proud. I said, yeah, I said, you know, my dad struggles with diabetes and, 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 and I have other family members that do. And so I said, I just decided I quit sugar. And I said, I've, I've quit it now for a year. And he goes, oh, he goes, well, you know, that's admirable. Um, but I it's really the, the belly fat, the brown belly fat around you that, that contributes to the pancreas dying. And he says, so it's nice that you uh, quit eating sugar, but if you really want to stave off diabetes and other problems like that, you're going to have to lose the gut. And so I was at a family event and uh, was talking to a friend and my sister Cindy. And my sister Cindy and I kind of think about food a lot the same way. And that's not a good thing. So, you know, Cindy just has more discipline than I do. Um, and uh, so we're standing there, the three of us are standing there talking. And I said, yeah, I said, the doctor told me this. And I reiterated the whole story. And I said, now I want to ask you two, what did you hear the doctor say? And the one guy standing there, he goes, I heard the doctor say, you need to, uh, you did a great job, but you need to work a little harder. And if you want to get where you need to go, you're going to have to lose that gut. And I looked at Cindy and she's already laughing. And I said, what did the doctor say? And Cindy said, the doctor said, there's no hope. You may as well eat all the sugar you want. <laughs> Cindy was right. I thought the sugar was going to take me, getting rid of it was going to take me to here. I found out it only took me to here, and this was all the further I was willing to go. We get so many areas in life where we say, I'm disappointed by God. But if we're honest with ourselves, we have to say our disappointment becomes because we thought God would do something if we went this far, and that thing would look like this. And God says, I'm going to do something if you go this far, but it's going to look like that. And so here, they have in their mind, Jesus is going to come. He's going to save us from Rome. He's going to save us from Jerusalem. And God says, no, I'm going to save you from the sins in your heart. I'm going to do something in your life that transforms you for an eternity. I'm going to do something that's so far beyond what you can even imagine. And this over here, it's not even a priority. You look all through Jesus' ministry and, and the... Uh, a uh, rich young ruler comes and says, you know, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, you know, tells him, you follow the commandments, you do all the right things. And he keeps pressing because he knows he's missing something. And Jesus says, get rid of everything you own. Now, is that a mandate for all of us? No. Jesus is saying, you're going to be disappointed with me and with life as long as the God you serve is the God of money and the God of your resources. You can look at a lot of things that we get disappointed in God in, and if you're really honest, it's because it didn't go the way that I thought it should. Jesus did not come to meet our expectations of, his, uh, of, the, of those fellow early Jews. He didn't come to meet our expectations of what a perfect life should look like. Jesus came to meet our needs at their core. He did not come to take down our enemies. He didn't come to make us super successful and lift us on high. He came to serve and give his life as a ransom for the sin in your life and mine. At its heart, our problems aren't political. Our problems aren't financial. Our problems aren't medical. They're not relational. Our problem is a heart problem, and Jesus came to overcome our sin. Mick Jagger was right when he said, 
you can't always get what you want, but if you try sometimes, you just might find you get what you need. Jesus came to bring you what you needed. And if you and I are disappointed, we're probably disappointed because we get confused on our wants and our needs. And so ask yourself and talk to God about what disappointed you. And then finally realize God hasn't walked away from you. God hasn't walked away from you. He hasn't abandoned you. He hasn't given up on you. Realize God, even through the times when you're frustrated and struggling with this, he is continuing to pursue you and he is con continuing to seek after you. Some of you, when facing the loss we talk about or those that you have in your mind, you're reacting in anger. Others are pulling away from God, just like the people in this story all eventually do. But look at how much God pursued all of them. Right after the, the temple, uh, right after the uh, resurrection, when the ladies went and um, uh, went to take care of Jesus, uh, do, do the proper things for the body, um, he had, they were reaching out to the other disciples who were still hiding, who were still disillusioned. We talked about the two men, and I want to read from Luke 24 a little bit about what they experienced. It said that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened, and as they talked and discussed these things, Jesus himself came up and walked along them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He shows up. And he says, what are you discussing? And they said, don't you know the things that have happened? And so they, they start talking about powerful Jesus of Nazareth. He was a prophet, powerful in the word, indeed, before God and all the people. And they start to share about all of the things that were true about him. And Jesus, and they still don't know who he is, he says, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. And then when they went to their, their home and they broke, broke bread together, their eyes were opened, they, they understood it was Jesus, and they said, were not our hearts burning with us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures? Jesus didn't wait for them to come back. He came out and he reached out to them. And then even that crowd that so bitterly hated him and was so angry with him for all that, that they felt they were wrong for, if you go to Acts 2, and uh, the, the group of believers is meeting. And it's that famous scene of Pentecost where the tongues of fire come down over them and people are confused about what's going on. So Peter stands up in the middle of this and he says, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to, to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you know. So he's saying, you knew Jesus. Remember all of those three years prior to that Palm Sunday event? You knew that. You were there on Palm Sunday. You saw all of the great things he did. And then he says, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him on the cross. But Jesus says, you got so angry that you were part of a plan to crucify your Messiah. But that's okay because God had a plan and he's resurrected. And they said, what shall we do? And Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. God continues to pursue. He doesn't shy away from your grief, your questions, or even your doubt. He can take each one of those expectations and grow you to the point 
where you accept him on faith and who he is, not in your expectations of who you think he should be. Author Hannah Anderson put it this way, He's the kind of God who welcomes our questions, who can wrestle with us through the confusion and still bless us in the process. He's the kind of God who delights in the plea, help my unbelief, and then holds on to us because we can't hold on to him anymore. He is the kind of God who can handle all of our doubts, our fear, our questions, if we will simply commit to letting him. And that is what faith does. Faith does not pretend that it is easy to believe what God reveals about himself. Faith simply makes a commitment to taking the questions back to God and believes that God will have the answers. If you want to be healthy, after you've grieved your losses, wipe your face, trust God, and embrace the life you have. Let your testimony about, let your testimony about when you've seen God move in your life. Let that become your Palm Sunday moment. You see, the journey through Palm Sunday is the same on our journey toward faith. We begin to hear about Jesus, this man from years ago who is still transforming lives today. Maybe it's a testimony of a friend whose life has been turned around. Perhaps you relate to stories that you've heard of victory in the Bible, and you begin to wrestle with the idea, are all of these things about God real? For many of you, at some point it all comes together, and you have your Palm Sunday moment where you celebrate Jesus as Messiah, and people say, Welcome to the family. You're a believer, a Christian now. But that journey to Christianity also includes a trip to the cross. As believers, we often talk about that. We say we go to the foot of the cross, and we talk about that being a moment where we repent of our sins. But I'd say Palm Sunday shows us that this also includes laying down my expectations of what God will and won't do in my life. And realizing when God does or doesn't do something expected, it's my mind and my expectations that need to change, not his, if I have any hope of growth at all. As a believer, you and I are going to face crucifixions in life. We're going to have loss of a job. We're going to have death of a loved one, broken relationships. And their devastation to our world it can be undeniably real. But the enduring hope is the very real Palm Sunday of celebrating Jesus as the Messiah, who we now know as the risen king, the one who came here to comfort those in, in hurt, to help us through our losses, and remind us that with his love, his power, he can bring us back to celebration, no matter what the world tries to throw at us. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for sending Jesus. Thank you for the victory celebration that is Palm Sunday. Help us, Lord, for all of those times where we're disappointed, where we feel like, Lord, we were doing the right things, we had all the right things going, and it didn't turn out the way it was. Should, did we misunderstand something? Help us not to be so grieved by those things that we pull away from you. And Lord, if there be anybody on, on this uh, feed today that has been a long time since they've been with you, that's still angry over something, that uh, has, has just felt like they're, they're not with you anymore, let this Palm Sunday be their opportunity to remember those celebrations again, to live in victory of what you've done in their life and what you're going to continue to do. And help us all as we go through this season, as we're worshiping together all over uh, in individual households, but, but still together uh, online, to remember 
that there is nothing, no storm, no sickness, no anything, that's going to stop the victory that comes from Palm Sunday, the victory that comes from Easter, and the victory that comes from Pentecost. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to go ahead and take communion. Communion is a wonderful time to remember what Christ has done for us. It's an opportunity to remember the um, sacrifice that he made of the broken body, of the spilled blood that is there for our sins. My challenge to you this uh, Easter and uh, Lent and Palm Sunday season, and as we take communion this morning, is to look back at this Palm Sunday. Look back at the original Palm Sunday, that moment in history where everyone, including Jesus, was declaring victory. And remember that if he had given them the victory they wanted, a king over Rome, we wouldn't have the hope and victory we need, which is a Savior in Christ Jesus. Somehow in times of disappointment, we have to say, Lord, I thought this would be a victory, but it sure looks like defeat. Help me push beyond what I wanted and reveal to me again what is needed and what I need is you, that servant leader loving me who wouldn't settle for overthrowing a government. He would only settle for overthrowing the grave. So if you have the bread, Paul reminds us that on the night Jesus was betrayed, that he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and said, this is my body. Whenever you take of this, remember my sacrifice. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup and he said, this is my blood, which will be shed for you. When you take the wine and you take the, the bread, you proclaim Jesus' death until he comes again. Let's partake. Of